When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hey everyone, happy Monday and welcome to a new episode of Radio Motherboard. I'm Ankita Rao. I'm here today with Louise Matsakis, our assistant editor, and Louise has brought in a very exciting interview for us. Hey Ankita, happy Monday. Um, so on this week's episode, I interviewed Franklin Four. He's the national correspondent at The Atlantic. Um, and he just wrote a new book called World Without Mind, The Existential Threat of Big Tech. So sounds like a very light and happy subject. What did you learn? Yeah, so basically, Franklin spent the last two and a half years or so kind of examining the power that a lot of these giant tech companies like Google and Facebook wield. I think ultimately, it's a book about the future of publishing and the future of uh, you know how we're going to distribute and read stuff on the internet and how those businesses are going to survive. Um, and he you know kind of walks you through the power that Google has, the power that Facebook has. You know, not only over how we get information, but however we think ultimately. Awesome. Well, it sounds like you're the perfect person to do this interview. Um, let's get into it. Hey, Frank, how are you doing today? I'm good. Um, so you have a big new book out. Uh, why don't you tell me about kind of the premise behind it? The book is really about the future of thinking and how... We have this handful of companies, Google, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, who've become these really imposing gatekeepers who shape our reality. They shape the way that we get news. We're going to be inhabiting the virtual realities that they create. And my book is really expressing the anxieties that I have about the overwhelming um, presence that these companies have in this world, that they, that the, the power that they've accumulated is not the power of a normal corporation. The power that they've accumulated is one that has enormous influence to shape markets, to shape news, to shape information, and therefore to shape democracy. And the book I wrote kind of describes how these companies came into being and describes how some of our most idealistic expectations for technology have turned into something extremely dark. And I think the book is also a manifesto. It's a critique of these companies, but I'm also trying to defend certain institutions, 
values, ways of thinking that I think are imperiled and deserve to be preserved. Yeah, it was interesting to, uh, I was reading a little bit from the book and I was reading some of the reviews. And one thing I found really interesting was this, the thinking aspect that you brought up quickly, uh, you know, right at the beginning I was uh, reading about Google Maps, and it was a perfect example of, like, I can't figure out how to get around anymore without a map like that. Um, And it's like, oh, it's removing this part of my thinking and having it be something that this company controls. Well, that's, you know, I actually don't even care so much. I mean, that that is a perfect example of the way in which we become cyborg and the way in which we've outsourced this thing that we've, this this sense that we developed over... um, over the entirety of human existence and that's just kind of disappeared in a flash because we've handed it over to Google. But I think that that's actually a perfect example of a wonderful way in which technology enhances our life because um, I'm sure that there are costs that come to being guided around by um, by algorithm. But I also but, don't get lost. You know, that yeah, this is exactly. a huge benefit. And it, I think it's good to start this conversation by being like, hey, like neither of us uh, are here to say that everything that technology has brought us is bad. And I think if you open your argument that way, that you lose a lot of people right off the bat. Yeah. What I care about is not, um, I mean, there's so much convenience that has come to our life because of the internet. And there's also, it, it actually, it does empower people in, in, in some of the ways that it's been advertised to have empowered people, but their cost and, one of the things about these creations is that they, they're just kind of magical and the magical quality of them means that we just don't apply our normal, normal human skepticism to them. And I, it's just, it shouldn't be so hard for us to say these creations are amazing, but there's also real downsides for them and the downsides are pretty major. And I think it's possible for us to start to think about how we move technology forward in a way that tries to capture the good while minimizing the bad. Yeah, no, I think that that's uh, really important. I mean, you must be extremely grateful for this book to have come out exactly when it did, because this has been kind of a crazy month for tech backlash and backlash against these companies. I really think that for the first time in you know, five or six years since I started writing and thinking about technology seriously, that there's been a real tide change, I think, both on the right and the left. I mean, yesterday, it was surreal to watch Mark Zuckerberg sit on a you know a live stream of himself and to look at to like look at 40,000 people watching live in the eye and be like, don't worry, we're sure that the democratic process is carrying on in Germany. Like, when was the last time, if ever, we needed that kind of promise and reassurance from a private company? Yeah, exactly. So when I started, I started writing this book about two years ago, two and a half years ago. And when I started, I felt like people looked at me funny when I said that I was writing a book critical of these companies because they had so much prestige. And, and I think some of the problems weren't entirely evident. The, this election reset our thinking about a lot of things, but um, especially our thinking about Facebook. But I, but I think in general, um, it just caused us to question the trajectory of things that during the Obama years, Obama attached himself to these companies, and Obama really embodied a, a, and projected a vision of, of human progress that was filled with all sorts of optimism. And the election of Donald Trump obviously is going to shatter a lot of people's sense of optimism and this feeling that 
the foundations of our republic are so much less secure than we than we thought they were. And the, the election of Trump just causes us to really rethink this whole ecosystem because there's 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 clearly something wrong with the quality of information that people are getting. And there's clearly rampant manipulation that's happening that's interfering with democratic processes. And so Mark Zuckerberg has to step forward, as you suggest, and, and try to rub our backs and say, it's all going to be OK. You know, here I am, you know, becalming, beneficent, all wise Mark Zuckerberg. Um, unfortunately for him, he's pretty terrible. <laughs> doing that sort of so thing. he's still so awkward, which is incredible. So many years later, yeah, <laughs> I definitely think that the election kind of changed a lot of this. And now I think for the first time, it's almost surreal to watch these um, antitrust conversations happening on Fox News. You know, I was watching a clip of Tucker Carlson the other day say, "Is Google a monopoly? It's like the most powerful company in the history of the world." And I was like, "That's something that." you know, you rarely hear from the right, you know, really wanting to check these corporations. I have an admission to make, Louise. I went on Fox News to talk about my book. Um, and, and it was the same deal where the, the host was completely, um, uh, she was completely adulatory in, in her feelings towards my book. You know, one thing we should be honest with ourselves about in a lot of these conversations is that there's a lot of, um, you know, corporations use use antitrust to bludgeon one another. And so you, you take, you take Fox for instance, and why is Fox, uh, anti Amazon, anti Google, anti Facebook? Well, Fox owns HarperCollins. It owns the wall street journal. It owns, it owns Fox news. It has a real big stake in maintaining a vision of intellectual property and also has a, a big stake in the way in the future of the advertising market evolves. Totally. That's a really good point to kind of look at, like, where is this, you know, what is the source of these agitations? Yeah. And, and from my perspective, I welcome it. I'm, I'm totally happy to have Fox join that conversation because it adds to the sense of pressure that these companies feel. And it's so even if they also have self-interest, there's also a fascinating way in which our politics are being scrambled right now. Trump, of course, represents this in the way in which he um, I mean, he basically does the rights bidding, but he also does some things to borrow from 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 the populist left. And even if Trump is kind of um, ultimately a stooge for the, the far right, I do think that there is something there, there are these, these cleavages happening all over the place. And the issue of monopoly and the tech companies is one that's going to divide the left and divide the right and create some funky coalitions. Yeah, I also think during the Obama years, there was this great alignment with, you know, I remember the ProPublica investigation that Google representatives visited the Obama White House like over a hundred times, you know, during his first term. It was, you know, it was incredible the kind of alliance that he built with these tech companies. And I think now that Trump is in office, that's also come back to bite them because now they're seen as these bastions of liberal ideology. And you see, uh, you know, some of these alternative social networks or these alt-right figures who are like, well, they're, you know, censoring, you know, right ideas, they're censoring our free speech. And uh, I think a lot of like, you know, grassroots distrust for platforms like Twitter, like platforms like Google and Facebook. Uh, I've like, you know, been seeing that bubbling up. Yeah, that that is completely fascinating because when Google 
launched its political strategy. I don't know if they did it self-consciously, but they created this. They tried to align themselves with the Democratic Party. And that seemed like a pretty good bet, because if there was going to be calls for regulation, if you looked at the history of modern American politics, you would guess that they would come from the left as opposed to the right. And so they made what seemed like a shrewd bet that's come back to bite them in the, the tush. Yeah, that, that that's it, it, everything that's happening right now is just it's it's confusing, it's fascinating, it's 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 terrifying, um, and I think it, it's we're just in the middle of this great this great shakeout. Yeah, and I wonder, um, you know, what's gonna happen to Facebook and Google? But I know that you also have written a lot about Amazon and Apple and some of these other companies. So, kind of tell me what it was like writing about Amazon, what the research was like, and kind of what you, you know, came to learn. It's been a really interesting week. I wrote earlier this week about uh, Amazon's bid to open its its contest to get cities to bid to open its second headquarters. Yeah. And it was incredible to watch these cities grapple and, um, like, beg to, you know, have Amazon come to their city. It was a really embarrassing. I think, uh, I think it was Phoenix. It was some city in the Southwest that sent, like, a giant cactus to yeah, Amazon as, like, a gift. Yeah, it was Tucson. Okay, yeah, uh, and I saw like a, you know this really cheesy video that the mayor of Washington D.C. made. It's just been you know really scary to see how blindly uh, these cities have you know tr- tried to welcome Amazon to them, whereas I feel like they're really ignoring uh, the lesson of Seattle, right? Or the lesson of any of the other cities that have aggressively wooed Amazon to build warehouses and or data centers, sure, or data centers, and it's just. I mean, to me, this is kind of a classic example of a company trying to plunder the resources of the public in order to benefit itself. And because of Amazon's aura and because everybody knows that Amazon bestrides American commerce right now, they want a piece of it. But after they give away the tax breaks and all the other subsidies that's going to attract Amazon, what's going to happen? I mean, in in some of these places, you see this... uh, you see this narrative where Amazon comes, they they give a lot, they, they provide a lot of jobs, not especially high quality jobs as it turns out, and then eventually they replace those not especially high quality jobs with robots. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, um, it, just this problem of I mean, this highlights the problem in the book of this excessive dependence that we feel on these companies and the ways in which. We just give away so much to be part of their ecosystems. Yeah, that's a good point uh, to talk about. I think I, in uh, a piece I wrote earlier this week, I, I called it, you know, they grew rich on the backs of our data, you know, on our on our own user data. And I think that's like what a lot of people don't realize. There's someone on Twitter last night who was like, oh, well, you know, like no one wants to blame themselves for like giving over their data to Google or Facebook. And I, I just think that's a really ignorant perspective because I really feel like a lot of people had no choice. But I was not supposed to get a Gmail account. Well, let me, let me, let me quibble with you just a little bit on that point, which is that I, by and large, I agree with you that we, we, we oftentimes think about these companies as manipulating us and they do manipulate us the terms of service agreements that they provide to us offer us little ability to bargain and then once you get into the system you're you know over time the goalposts get moved and so privacy protections that you signed up for initially get reduced over time and you end up clicking and agreeing to the reductions in privacy because you're locked into their system but there is a way in which we as consumers 
just accept this bargain much too readily. And we've just decided that it's worth it for us to to sacrifice certain goods in order to win the efficiency that comes with these products. And to me, society has just got the balance all completely wrong, the way that we've come to worship efficiency as the be all and end all. So I, I agree with you, but I feel like I couldn't have this nuanced of uh, conversation with myself when I was like 12 when I signed up for Facebook. That's a fair point. <laughs> I think now I kind of think to myself, okay, like, do I want to upload this image to Facebook, not only because of this picture or the status, not only because, you know, now everyone I've ever met in my entire life is going to see it, but also, uh, you know, what's the, what are they going to do with the data? Like, do I want to contribute this to this giant social network? But when I was 13 and like, you know, uploading selfies of myself on my flip phone, that bargain was not apparent. And I think that it, that bargain has grown apparent. And, it, you know, at the time it was like, oh, well, you know, MySpace is not as efficient as this new thing called Facebook. Like, just join it. Like, who cares? I mean, the, the problem is, is that we're all in the same position that you were when you were 12, which is that even when you start to know better about these companies, they become so hard, circling back to your original point, they become so hard to avoid. And the convenience is such that we're, we're essentially addicted to these products and that they're designed to be addictive. So with Facebook, it's clear you get this, there's the feedback loop that Facebook creates where it's giving you what you want. Content's been reverse engineered to appeal to your emotions and to appeal to you personally because they understand your psyche so well based on all the data that they have. But the same is true for Amazon, that Amazon, it's not just the recommendation engines. It's that Amazon Prime is is a system that's that locks you in. That once you've paid that eighty, whatever it is, ninety bucks to be part of Amazon Prime, you're you're with them all the way because you think that it's a good deal for yourself. Right. And it's one click. It's easy. I like realize I don't have toothpaste. It's like, okay, well, I'm going to take a minute to do it. I don't have to take out my credit card again. I don't have to search for the best deal. And it's going to be there in 24 hours or 48 hours, uh, which is definitely, you know, like really alluring. Um, but yeah, it, and and the locked in thing is so true. My colleague and I were talking the other day and we wanted to do a stunt, you know, piece of stunt journalism for a month where he didn't use any products from the four big companies so you know no apple phone no gmail so he's gonna get like you know and some sort of android device but you know you can't run you know google android on it you know he was gonna uh, get like you know a linux computer or something because you can't you know you can't use apple's operating system and we were kind of planning this piece and then uh he got promoted to an editor position he was like i can't do my job without these companies so i can't pull this off right (laughs) which is really scary that you can't and even even trying to avoid one of these companies, I think probably the easiest one to avoid is Apple. Um, but it's still not something that you can, uh, you know, really completely avoid. Uh, which brings me to an interesting question. Um, what did you kind of figure out about Apple? So Apple is not a central part of my book. Um, and because so much of my book is really... Um, it's about the future of media and publishing and Apple's place. And that's a little bit confusing because to the extent that they were, so these companies compete with one another, but they don't really compete with one another. They kind of, they test, they test their ability to compete. So Apple uh, tried to get into the book business briefly. And once they got, it became difficult, they kind of backed away from that. But 
the moment that they were for the moment that they were in the book business, they were kind of good for publishers and authors from my my perspective. I, you know, I think that the problem with Apple is that Apple create created the ultimate device that is the single most addictive piece of technology. And, you know, you we, we all know that we, we we check our phones 200 times a day and that there's this biological compulsion to do so. And we wish I wish I didn't feel so magnetically drawn to doing that. And I know that it makes me a worse person <laughs> for doing that. Isn't it? Isn't it the worst when you like, I, I feel like this happens to me frequently. I sit down with a magazine and I have my phone in one hand and I have the magazine and I'm ready to put my phone down and then it doesn't happen. Right. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Right. No, that's 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 what happens because it's it's the phone, and the phone is the platform for the addictiveness of everything else. So the phone itself is addicting, and it's also a platform for these these other platforms that are that are so tremendously addicting right when it comes to apple i guess what i think of in terms of you know publishing in the future of you know, inter- information distribution is i think about the great ad blocking uh catastrophe of like i think it was like 2015 when all those reports came out that they were going to have automatic ad blocking and like the next yep. ios or something and now they're not allowing in the latest ios to have uh ads that follow you around the web from what I understand, which is like, you know, a big part of the advertising model of a lot of these companies. That's why, you know, you click on a shoe on Instagram and then you see that shoe on your Facebook feed or whatever. Right. Um, and what is going to happen to this, you know, fractured advertising market if those kinds of ads aren't allowed to proliferate on this closed ecosystem that is Apple? Because it's, you know, it's one thing for them to block it on their own, uh, you know, their Safari web browser or whatever. But the problem is how many people are downloading another browser how many people are trying to fight back against apple's ecosystem i think very few iphone users care everything comes in there it comes right out of the box it works fine why change the way that apple's designed it right ad blocking is a really interesting question in general because it was it was one of these concepts that made me so optimistic uh, that there was going to be some technology so if you look at the history of technology, one thing that recurs is that we, we come to agree that technology is a problem in one way, shape or form. And then we look for a new technology to help liberate us from the old technology. And ad blocking was one of those new technologies that I found myself extremely optimistic about because I, I find the current. That's shocking as a journalist for you to say that. I feel like when I heard how many people were using ad blockers, I was like, dear God, how am I going to get paid? Well, but the problem is, is that the, I mean, advertising just locks us into this crap system that we're stuck in where, um, because the ad market is so deflated and devalued and the existing, the existing forms of advertising are just so cheap and shoddy that, um, if we're, if we're stuck in this current system, we just keep having to expand our scale we we keep having to grow to get more traffic to sell more ads and we we get stuck on this um this this habit trail where there's really there's really no way out and um and and there's something so distorting about journalism 
continuing to have to expand its scale because right the the buzzfeed model right and that's kind of what everybody has become at this stage everybody everybody aspires to have the entire world as their market because that's the only way that you're able to to sell the ads that you you need And, and and it just increases the dependence on facebook to have to they have to, have to sell on that scale because Facebook is the only is the only platform that can really offer up the chance of virality, the chance of tapping into a massive global market in that sort of way. Totally. If, if you have all of the most important people in uh, whatever you know field you write about talking and sharing your article on Twitter, you you haven't you haven't really gone viral. It's not going to work. Like that's that model is not going to work. Yeah. And so we just, you know, I, I hate to sound like a Leninist on this point, but I feel like in order for, um, in order for journalism to survive with its soul, it needs to, it needs to find some way to escape the current advertising model. Um, which means, which means in part a return to subscriptions, but it also means coming up with a better advertising model. Because um, adver- we live in an advertising world where there are only a handful of companies that can truly flourish. And those companies are Google and Facebook. And, and right. They've mastered, they've created this advertising market, which is so dependent on scale and so dependent on, um, on having the best set of data. And it's just it's all set on on their terms for them to succeed, for us to become dependent on them. Right. It was incredible. I used to work at Mashable, which is like, you know, a company known for, you know, like viral web content and like, you know, like stories about social media. And uh, we were having some sort of traffic problem and no one could like figure out what was wrong. And one of the audience development people was like, oh, this like we're having this like problem with Facebook. And so she, you know, called whatever our Facebook contact and he was like, Oh my bad. And like, you know, flipped a switch and everything went back to normal. Um, which was terrifying (laughs) to realize the power that they had over our business model. But it happens on a much more macro level too, which is that Facebook decides what's good for Facebook and sets policies for Facebook that, that, that allow them to accomplish that strategy. And so, the most obvious and extreme example is that Facebook has decided that video is the future, that it's going to totally. I was just thinking that into a television, um, into, into kind of a cable network, um, or, or, or something. And so everybody who's dependent on Facebook, which is by the way, all of journalism, um, then has to follow suit. And so you look at the all pivot the pivot to video. Yeah. And so all of these companies are making massive investments in video. Are they doing that? In, are they making that investment because they've def- decided that they were wrong all these years that, you know, words, they're a pretty good delivery mechanism, but <laughs> really should be switching to moving images because that's the best way for us to c- convey the things that we're trying to write about and report about. No. They're making that switch because Facebook decided that it wants to do that. And there's just a capriciousness to it, which is that you could become if, you know, your 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 outlet could make this switch to video. And then in a month's time, Facebook could decide, you know what, we're having a hard time monetizing video. We were doing better with those words. So 
we're going to devalue video now. And so you've just, you know, you've just shifted all these resources into video. You fired a bunch of writers in order to make those, th th that commitment, you canceled contracts and then Facebook changes back. And that's just the problem of dependence. When you're dependent on a platform, um, you just have to hope that that platform behaves in a beneficent sort of way that's good for the entire ecosystem. When in fact, we know that's almost never the case. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. Um, I think when this pivot to video on Facebook happened and you saw all these companies try and like, you know, change their editorials uh, strategy rapidly. One of my favorite things that kind of bubbled up was, you know, a bunch of like spammy content creators who make these like bad <laughs> videos yeah. started just making like there were still images, but they played as videos. So right. it was just like a 10 second clip, but it was just an image and they just started pushing those out. So it was just like you could tell that Facebook was just surfacing more videos, even if they weren't, you know, high quality or good videos. Um, it's, it's just so weird to watch that happen. And like, you know, I've worked in these digital media companies and watched, you know, executives really struggle to be nimble enough to, you know, make these changes and have the resources to deal with you know, Facebook shifting desires and they're, they're shifting business interests and it's never quite, you can never quite stay on top of what's going to happen next, um, which is, you know, incredibly frustrating. Can I just say one thing that really makes me mad about this, which is the way in which it forces all media companies to become technology companies, um, that there's just this investment that all media needs to make in, in technology now, which, okay, on some, some, basic level I get because we're all publishing via digital platforms and that's important. But it also, um, this condition of just, of, of having to, to fret about the next new medium and which new platform, uh, you know, how to obey the laws of the platform. It just, it forces media to get so outside of its comfort Core zone. mission. Yeah. And, and really Core what it's mission. supposed to be about. Yeah. And it's very distorting in terms of, how organizations um, uh, create their rosters, how they invest their money. And part of what's so disorienting about it is because, because media doesn't understand what it's doing at some fundamental level. It, these are decisions that are just driven by anxiety and oftentimes by um, a core sense of ignorance and just this slavish, following of whatever the most fashionable thought of the moment is. Yeah, no, it's it's really difficult. And it's it's especially as, you know, writing and reporting about technology every day, it's really weird because I feel like the line between reporting on myself is so blurry because in, you know, 2017, I feel like tech and media are the same thing in a lot of respects. And it can be really difficult to like, even just to navigate conflicts of interest. Like, I'm like, I don't know, like Vice is, you know, doing all these things that are, you know, the hallmarks of a technology company like you know what is my reporting on this going to look like um you know if i write this hit piece on facebook is that going to somehow impact like the reach of my publication right i think one good thing that's happened in the last couple of months is that the that tech media had this stockholm syndrome with the industry absolutely and, and it was really it was quite frankly a bit pathetic um just to read um to read a lot of the big tech websites over time that there, there was just this um apologetic they were apologetic for the most powerful and wealthy corporations in the world which is alarming for journalism it was worse than that they were they were they were um 
and they became shills for the product. Everything became about the latest release and celebrating the latest release and media became complicit in product rollouts and they became hype, they were hype machines for the the newest thing and there was um there's right, still a lot of that frankly no there is but there's there it's at least coupled now with some more skeptical reporting so with the the release of the iPhone X it's there there's at least skepticism being voiced about facial recognition and that um some of the the creepier um social implications of the new device are at least being considered there's still a hell of a lot of cheerleading as you suggest but i think it's it's, they're at least being smudged up in ways that they weren't before right there's like you know a long form piece about google's algorithm next to the you know google search algorithm or something next to a review of the pixel phone or whatever there's at least like a little bit more of that which is nice but yeah i mean that's one of the things i one of the reasons i came to motherboard is that i couldn't stand the idea of working for a publication where i was going to be expected to cheerlead these companies and i do agree that there has been more of a tide shift like people the instinct now is like to be vigilant the instinct now is to be like okay this new thing comes out and you know within you know, 10 minutes of the facial recognition software being announced on the iPhone X, people were like, oh, is Face ID going to be abused? Like on Twitter, like that was the first reaction. And by the end of the day, there were, you know, several articles that people had written about you know, the implications of Face ID from, you know, a legal perspective, from, uh, you know, spyware perspective. Um, I think another interesting thing, speaking of, you know, looking at something like Face ID and, the, you know, is Apple going to, it doesn't seem like it, but is Apple going to build a database of our faces, um, which I I think that's unlikely. Why is that unlikely? <laughs> um, only because the uh, your face, the same way that your fingerprints, they're stored locally on your phone. So there's no cloud where they're kept. It, you know, right. they, that's what they're telling you. But I think thinking about those kinds of questions, like it brings me to like... A, but, but, once you, but once you create that technology... I mean, I guess your phone is your primary. I'm just thinking, trying to think this through. I mean, it, the technology is going to exist. It's going to proliferate. It's going to be part of the Internet of Things. It's going to be part of. Um, oh, there might be a face database somewhere. You know, like yeah. it, there, there already are. You know, there are already criminal databases that are using facial recognition technology in the United States and elsewhere. For sure, I think that the future of facial recognition is scary, but I think necessarily is it going to come out of the iPhone X? I'm not sure. But it leads me to a question about what happens when one of these companies stops being benevolent. You know, Facebook and Google and Apple have made these promises like we're not going to, you know, make a database of your faces. We're not going to use your search information to, uh, you know, target to to, we're not going to turn that over to law enforcement or whatever the, the promises they make of the day. Um, and we know when something happens, like that ProPublica investigation from, I think, last week or the week before that showed that you could, you know, target people who hated Jews on, uh, you know, through Facebook ads. They're like, oh, that's an accident. It's the algorithm. The answer is always, oh, it was our algorithm. It's not something we did on purpose. But, you know, what happens when the next leader of Google or, you know, the next leader of Facebook, you know, doesn't have those benevolent interests? Like, what are we going to do? So I think. I think they've actually already stopped being benevolent. That implicit that that this refusal to um, the ways in which they've commoditized basically everything, as that Jew hating example shows, where um, there was just zero moral responsibility. Anything could be into, made used to make money. Yeah, baked into their power. Um, I think that that's actually pretty malevolent in itself. 
So they may not be sitting there designing um, uh, systems to, 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 to elect Mark Zuckerberg president um, uh, because he'll become a benevolent dictator. That's not happening. But what's happening, they, they've already created a fairly malevolent system where we're in order to keep us addicted to their systems. They've they've allowed for information to be arrayed in a way that makes us highly susceptible to demagoguery, fake news, authoritarian appeals. Um, you know, Donald Trump is evidence uh, in, 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 of their malevolence. I, I, he got elected with their with the complicity of the systems that they created. Now they may not have designed those systems to accomplish that goal. They designed those system systems to make gobs of money. But, um, I don't think that we need to, we need to assume that their behavior is going to shift in order to, um, for problems to happen really. Yeah. Yeah. Right. We need to, we, the problem, the, 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 the apocalyptic scenarios have kind of already arrived. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good point. There, there is something malevolent in not having any respect for people's time or for people's emotions. There is something to be said for there are Google engineers, there are Facebook engineers who are like, how can I make this as addicting as possible? How can I force you to spend as much time on our platform as humanly possible? This, this goes to something that I've been thinking a lot about just as we think forward towards the future. That So I have, I have a 12-year-old daughter and... Um, like all, like a lot of 12 year olds, she, she hears about STEM all day long and she loves engineering and, and really excited about coding and the like, we're just kind of hammered over the head with this message that if you don't know how to code, you're going to be, gonna your be, life is going to be ruined. You're, yeah, you're never going to make a dollar. You're going to be a homeless person. And, um, and part of me resents that, but Part of me also, as I've considered this issue, my attitude has shifted a bit, and I've, I've increasingly come to the conclusion that you know, my daughter really actually needs to get into computer science, and, and, and computer science needs to be liberated from the engineers. That What is engineering? Engineering is a way of creating efficient systems. And if the people who are creating our systems are simply approaching them from the perspective of the internal logic of those systems and creating things that are most efficient, most frictionless, et cetera, then we're, we're, we're designing systems that don't really take into account any of the human dimensions. And so as we, as we think forward, I think it's an imperative to liberate computer science from the computer scientists that as we design systems, we need people who are designing those systems who are able to think about ethics, morality, politics, um, to understand what it means to be a human being. And, and, you know, code is not, code is a tool. Code doesn't solve problems. Like you can't, you know, and engineering is, is, you know, we use sets of tools to solve problems. It's ultimately going to be up to us to design those tools correctly. Like I think that we have this, uh, you know, like you said at the beginning of this interview about how we see these companies as magic. Like, this isn't magic. Like, these are tools that were designed and they were designed by people. And we're going to have to, you know, be really careful about what, you know, who we let to design these tools and how they're designed and how they're taught. Um, you guys say this all the time in AI. I'll talk to an AI researcher. Or I'll talk to someone who made, 
you know, what I think is a kind of creepy tool. And I'm like, well, have you thought about, you know, implication X, Y, Z? And they're like, oh, no, I didn't really think about that. I just thought about how could I build this? Mm. Yeah. And that's <laughs> when I was watching Zuckerberg yesterday, um, I had the same sense that here's a guy who is an engineer who believes he created the most perfect system. And there, there, there's some reason he, he's just unable to accept the ways in which his system is fundamentally is fundamentally flawed. That there, there's there, why is he so tone deaf to the criticisms that he's on the receiving end of? Why why does he seem so um, so essentially emotionless in in the face of all of these complaints? Um, I think it's because he believes he believes in the virtue of the thing that he engineered. He thinks that he created something that responds to human choice, that that responds to human desire, um, that gives people what they want. And so, I don't know. I think I think he just doesn't get it on some on some fundamental human level because it threatens this incredible thing that he created, this, mon- this this monument to engineering that he created. Right. And it, and it's hard because there are, you know, nuances. Like, I think that he's like, well, look, I empowered 2 billion people to share whatever they want with whoever they want. And, you know, on some level, there is some truth to that. There is some truth to totally. if I, you know, I can tap into this network and be like, hey, like, I'm going to be in Boston tonight. Like, can I stay at anyone's house? And like, you know, five of my friends that I haven't talked to in years respond. Like, there is something you know, beautiful about that. And there is something that has been incredible about it and like the ability to, you know, stay in touch with these people. But at the same time, uh, you know, I was thinking about this interview last night and I was, you know, scrolling through Facebook at like midnight on, you know, my friend's wedding pictures of someone I haven't spoken to in years. And I just kind of, you know, for the 20th time that day was like, what am I doing right now? (laughs) And I, you know, realized I'm like, I gave into a system that was designed to have me do exactly what I'm doing right now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, Frank, thank you so much, and uh, you know I'm really looking forward to finishing the book. Uh, and congratulations on it. I'm looking forward to seeing uh, you know what other people think. All right. Thanks so much. Yeah, for sure. Have a good day. All right. You too. That was fascinating and also makes me a little bit worried about how dependent we are on some of these platforms like Facebook and obviously Google. Totally. I think it's really going to be hard for journalists in the future to figure out how to untangle ourselves from Facebook and other platforms like it. Did you feel any sense of hope in um, in what we could do or, or becoming more vigilant about how we use some of this tech? Yeah, I think the big takeaway uh, from Ford's book and more generally is that people are starting to question the authority of these companies for the first time, I think, in the wake of Donald Trump's election. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, well, as we have a couple of more months of 2017 and we make it through our first year, Um, of this presidency, I think that we will continue to question a lot of these themes. Um, Thanks so much, Louise, and we will see the rest of you next week on Radio Motherboard. Thanks, guys. Please like, subscribe, write us reviews on iTunes. That was our assistant editor, Louise Matsakis. I'm Ankita Rao, and our episode was produced and edited by Sophie Cases.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.